Welcome back to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. It's the NIL hour, always about an hour. Back, of course, this week with Mike Lawson. Hello, Taryn. Glad, <laughs> glad you're back this week. Holly Summers week. is hey, also how's with it going? And our good friend of the show, Amanda Kristovich, college sports reporter at Front Office Sports, is joining us. Hi, Amanda. We only have one hour to talk about NIL. Yeah, and this is an everyday thing for you. So uh, hopefully we can boil down some of the extensive knowledge that you have on all of the craziness that is happening uh, into just about an hour. All right, let's do it. This week, we're going to be talking about a story that you've covered extensively. The Student Athlete Advisory Committee released a letter that went out to uh, about a dozen senators this week talking about these students on the advisory committee and their view on possible employment, something that we've discussed at length with the NLRB case, also got new guidance from the Internal Revenue Service on how 501c3 collectives are supposed to be treated. And then finally, we'll be reflecting a little bit on the state of society with the baby Gronk story. First, a message from our platform, Spotify. As always, this podcast is sponsored by Themis Bar Review. Themis is the best bar prep company in the galaxy. We are in prime bar prep season now, so we hope you are using Themis. And if you are a rising 3L, definitely give Themis a look for your bar prep needs. Head over to Themis Bar Review and use the code CDThemis500. Thank you, Themis. So let's start here. Amanda, you talked about the D1 Student Athlete Advisory Committee today. Can you break down some of the key points of that letter? As I mentioned, it was addressed to about a dozen senators. And what were they kind of trying to say? And who was saying it? I guess on Monday, the NCAA released three letters that the Student Athlete Advisory Committees for each division had sent to Congress. And the letters for divisions two and three were like both like a couple pages long. So I'm going to focus on the division one letter. It was signed only by the division one SAC chair, unlike the other letters, which were signed by like you know, the names of all of the members were, were there. So it sort of appeared to be like really only written by one person who also is a graduate assistant coach. He's not currently an athlete as far as I could tell from the uh, beautiful internet because he did not respond to my request for comment. Surprise, surprise. Just to jump in really quick, do you have any sense as if that's normal or not? Is it typically somebody that's no longer a student athlete that chairs the the Student Athlete Advisory Committee? That's a great question. I don't know 100% either way, but what I can say is that that reminded me of the NCAA Constitution Committee, where they only had, I think, one current athlete on the, it was like, they touted they had three athletes, but one of them was like a four, you know, hadn't been an athlete for a long time. He was like a law school graduate, right? One of, and, and I, and then one of them was for sure an athlete, but she wasn't division one. And then I don't quite remember who the third was, but that's kind of like that. It rang true for, seems like the NCAA is like doing this often. So 
if you want to know what's in the letter, uh, all you got to do is listen to what Charlie Baker has been saying, because it was literally like not just the same talking points as the NCA legal team and PR team, but some of the same exact phrasing that NCA officials have been using. So the NIL part, they talked about a couple of legitimate, you know, things that seemed legitimate. They wanted a uniform NIL law that sort of preempts the state laws. They wanted a law that kept athletes from being exploited from bad actors. I feel like that's sounds, sounds good to me. Right. Yeah. I will say that in my reporting, I can tell you a lot of athletes don't really care either way, whether or not there's a federal NIL law, because like, it's not their problem. So just going to put that out there. But the crux of the letter was about employment, athlete employment status, like it said, in bold face, italicized type, like, we do not believe that we should be considered employees of our universities. Mm -hmm. And all of the reasoning was like, point by point, NCA propaganda. Um, And I don't know how deep you want me to get into it. Yeah, I can uh, talk about that a little bit. So there were four different areas that they kind of mentioned. One mm-hmm. was educational focus. Another was workload and time commitments. Uh, third one was amateurism and fair play. And then financial stability, uh, sustainability, sorry. As for the fourth one, I'm not sure why the student athletes would necessarily care. But the second right. one- Same as the third, by the way, because the third yeah. was about- the ability for schools to comply with Title IX if they had to put some of their revenue towards athlete salaries. And I'm sitting there going, what athlete, these, right, like reasons three and four were things that are related to like the universities. Um, that's advocating for the university's interests, not the athlete's interests. And, yeah. and then I'll just interject my opinions on the first two based on my reporting, which is that those are easily disputable things. Any athlete will tell you that they already spend way more hours a week on their sport, at least in division one, than they're allowed to. The NCA has published surveys like literally itself that have said that. Right. So that's that on that. Um, and then there's one other part of the letter that I want to get to, but I didn't know if you had to add, wanted to add something else. Yeah. Well, so as far as the workload and time commitments, that seems like if it was, if they had employee status, that that's something that they could collectively bargain out. Exactly. I'm not sure why they would be opposed to that, but you know, obviously, like I think about this from a perspective of wanting them to to have those rights to collectively bargain. But I was surprised by something that I saw online today. Uh, Chrissy Dosh, who uh, is at Sports Biz Miss on Twitter and is is a really good follow for anybody that's interested in this sort of field. She said that a lot of the student athletes that are in her coursework don't want to be termed employees. And that was just surprising to me. So do you have any sense of like what the reasoning might be behind that? Yes, uh, I do. The reasoning is that they're maybe not all the reasoning. I'm trying to couch myself here. Some of the reasoning appears to be, and this also appears to be the case with SAC and the letter that SAC published. These conversations are being led by people who have a vested financial interest in athletes not being employees, right? So of course, a college athlete is going to not want to be an employee if when they ask, well, what would that look like? It's the parade of horribles, right? (laughs) Do they know that they would... 
spend less time on their sport if they were considered an employee? Do they know that they can limit that time? Do they know that they can get paid and also still, you know, have an educational focus like work study? Do they know certain, you know, medical protections that they could receive if they had a federal employee status, right? Like, do they know the, these things? Those are questions that I would ask before just saying, oh yeah, take frankly, before taking their word for it. Um, and I can tell you that my reporting says that NCAA employees do their best to influence the opinions, views, and public communications of the Student Athlete Advisory Committee. So I think it's reasonable to assume, and also people have told me this as well, that across the country, when a random kid says, well, why can't we be employees? Their coach or their athletic director is gonna bring out the list of all the horrible things about the end of college sports. Sure. So that's that on that. <laughs> and part of this, I wanted to bring up the last portion of the letter, which was the most bizarre. Yeah. Was that the this quote unquote athlete, whatever student athlete advisory committee member was advocating for Congress to grant quote unquote safe harbor against legal protection or, you know, against litigation for the NCAA from a comp compensation athlete compensation perspective so that they could litigate NIL on their own and um, or legislate it. Excuse me. I'm sitting there going what athlete in this country, like what 18 to 22, 23, 24, 25 year old athlete, when someone brings up employees or NIL, they're, the thing they want to tell federal lawmakers is to ask for an antitrust exemption? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. And, and I, you know, and, and one of the former athletes, now college athlete advocates that I spoke with for the story, I was like, can you give me one reason Give me one why a current college athlete would want to advocate for this, right? We just talked about why they might not want to be employees or whatever. Why would a college athlete want an antitrust exemption for the NCAA? He's like, I cannot think of one reason why. Unless if they were standing right behind you and writing the letter. No. So the thing is, the NCAA probably wrote the letter because another person who used to be on SAC told me at least, you know, five, 10 years ago that the way that it worked was multiple NCAA teams were going through every public communication that SAC put out. We're talking PR, media relations, legal, the works, right? So, and, and they weren't even trying to hide it was the other thing, right? It's like, <laughs> anyway, so we've all talked about the antitrust exemption that the NCAA has been begging for for many you know, multiple years and weirdly also then turning around and saying, oh, that's not what we're asking for, but clearly it is. Absolutely bizarre that it's in a letter that is supposed to be representing 18 to 22 year old college athletes. So that's exactly where I was going to go, actually, what you just mentioned. So I saw from your article and, you know, a good follow on Twitter too, sports attorney Maddie Salomon was the former mm -hmm. D1 SAC chair. And she had said, you know, she confirmed to you that the, that this had to go through the NCAA. Now, my question is kind of twofold. So the first part is, I know, I know the student athlete, just from my experience, you know, at, uh, at Syracuse, I know that these athletes are, that have a seat at the table, whether or not that their input is taken, neither here nor there, but so they have a seat at the table. They're in on these committees about 
finding a way to craft some sort of legislature within the, the NCAA bylaws that relates to NIL. Now, because of that, my question is, are they just basically being told what they should think that the legislation is best for the student athletes and they're just kind of their opinions are being swayed? Or do you think that they're truly just writing the letter for them, handing it to them and saying, this is what SAC is going to post? I don't know on like a granular level, like what happens, you know, like how the sausage gets made per se. But what I can say, and you know, this was something that Maddie told me is that the athletes who are in stack are basically like told not to talk about things that are too controversial, right? It's like, they're, they're told not to, you know, like, where do you want to use your legislative capital, right? It's like, don't use it on controversial things like this sort of thing. And, and there was another, um, a, a current athlete I spoke with who very rightfully so does not want to be identified. That athlete told me that a lot of the athletes on SAC want to work in college sports when they graduate. So they don't want to ruffle feathers, mm. right? And at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what they think when the NCAA legal team and PR team is quote unquote editing, you know, their content. Maddie talked about how even the newsletter that SAC put out when she was there was edited by the NCAA's employees. So to me, like, I'm not even sure that, you know, I mean, it's not that, that the question of what they actually believe doesn't matter because what the athletes believe we need to know that the, the other thing I'll say too, and sorry, this is just like all my reporting in my head. I haven't organized it very well, but is that like, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy of like, you know, the, the person on SAC nominates the next person. So it's like, obviously there are going to be similar views that are just being sort of like passed down through the food chain. And again, they're not allowed to speak publicly either regardless of what goes in the document that goes on the website, this person that I reached out to, there was no way he was going to respond to me because it is so against NCAA policy for these athletes to speak out, right? Whether they agree with the NCAA's views or not, like, so that that's just the policy. So my follow-up to that is knowing that, and that was exactly kind of how I thought it was going to be like your, how I, I think what's happening at these committee meetings and with SAC and, especially now that it's pretty public and the NCAA should know that it would be this public, that the control over sex, you know, public and any sort of document that, that comes out. So my question, my, my follow-up question is with the NCAA knowing that, do you think this was just a, a dumb move on their part to have this letter even get published, even trying to think that it was coming across as student athletes and what they thought, but it just went a bit beyond that. I think that they clearly saw the potential utility of having ath current athletes talk about, you know, pro NCA views in a letter to Congress, like for them to send a letter to Congress that, you know, just peddles their own rhetoric and, and call it what the athletes think. Obviously, there's utility in that. I don't necessarily know that there's utility in them publishing that, right? Because Interestingly enough, if I remember correctly, all of the power five letters to Congress about what they wanted for NIL were like, 
obtained by Ross Dellinger at Sports Illustrated. Shout out to Ross. He gets all of that stuff, right? And he publishes it. But what that tells me is that these officials didn't want the public knowing what their stance was, but they wanted Congress knowing so that Congress could legislate in their favor. So I don't know why the NCA put this on their website, but I've got notifications for their Twitter turned on. So every time they post a new article or whatever, I see it. And I was like the only one, I think, or maybe just the first that saw it. Maybe they just thought it would fly under the radar. I, frankly, I don't know why they put it on their website because they didn't have to. But thank you, NCA. <laughs> the d1 letter was written by you said like a graduate assistant or a baseball coach or both i don't think that he can take advantage of nil for student athletes so what do you think the purpose of having this letter come from a student athlete standpoint saying what student athletes want not come from a student athlete well this athlete is the division one sack chair He's like a graduate assistant, I guess. That's what he was listed as. He did play baseball for sure, like I saw on the website. I don't know why, as a graduate assistant, he's the chair of Division One SAC. It's possible that he just finished his career and like in the last few months. I don't, I don't know. The utility in that is that hopefully the Congress people wouldn't look too deeply into who he is because he's listed as the Division One SAC chair. Yeah, that's the other thing that I was thinking. Again, this is speculation, right? The other thing I was thinking is, again, you look at the D2 and the D3 letters. Those letters have every single athlete on that committee listed at the bottom of the letter, right? So this one didn't. And it was a and it was written as I am, you know, hello, this is me. I'm the chair of D1 SAC. So I wonder if like none of the other D1 SAC members would sign on to it. I don't know. Yeah, that was kind of my line of thinking because in your article, you also mentioned like there are clear examples that a lot of student athletes don't agree with this. Like we have the current Johnson versus NCAA case basically saying the exact opposite of this letter. So it just kind of was confusing, maybe blew my mind a little bit that no other athlete signed it and the chair maybe is not currently an athlete. Especially when you open the letter saying that you speak for 190,000 student athletes. Right. And and again, there are so many, I'm not saying that one, you know, because I, I wanted to be careful to say like the people who say like all the athletes want to be employees are also, that's not true either. Right. Yeah. There are hundred, there's like what, hundred, hundred thousand, hundreds of thousands of college athletes, right? Like you, you cannot say that they all believe the same thing. But my issue with this is saying is that there are so many and I didn't I'm literally just thinking of this now, but like, remember the we are united players movement, they asked for revenue sharing and collective bargaining like there are so many examples of the wide variety of views that athletes hold on this subject, it is it was fishy at best and exploitative at worst for the NCA to put out a letter that was literally just its own talking points and saying that this is what the athletes want, because it's not. And like you said, a great deal of similarity between that and then Charlie Baker's comments today when he spoke publicly. It's pretty clear. <laughs> are we fooling here? Yeah. yeah. Maybe they'll fool Congress. That seems well, to be- Well, that's what I'm wondering. It's like, I, you know, maybe I, I mean, not me, but like maybe somebody should be sending my article to 
these senators and Congress people to be like, look, you if you might agree with the contents of this letter, we just want you to, <laughs> I just hope that they realize that like, it's not representative of what the athletes think because in, in first of all, it's literally just too granular to represent what the athletes think. You know what I mean? Let's start there. <laughs> Well, I think that a lot of people are kind of in their own silos, right? And so if the people that come before Congress are during that summit that they had on Capitol Hill, where the the woman softball player from Florida State was saying, like, no, I don't want to be uh, an employee. And then if they get this letter and it says, no, 190,000 of us that I represent, we don't want to be employees either. I mean, maybe they take that at, at face value and they say, well, I guess that they don't want to be employees. We better preempt the state laws and give them the safe harbor and and give the NCAA whatever they want so that they can protect the student athletes. I mean, obviously that's misguided, but they're dealing with a lot on Capitol Hill. And so maybe they just don't know any better. So maybe everyone that's listening to this should retweet your article, Amanda, so that it picks up a little bit more Look, I, and I'm not like, uh, you know, we'll get to the IRS. I will say one of my articles was cited in the IRS memo, which I didn't realize until like two days later. Read the footnotes, said your professors. It doesn't matter to me, right? Like, I'm just saying like my reporting suggests that this is just not an accurate representation. And I would say the same thing about, you know, for example, if the NCPA wrote a letter about their views and said 190,000 college athletes think this, I would say the same thing, right? Um, there are clear examples of, of, of wide range of views and it, it just, but yeah, I mean, it, it just didn't make sense that, that these, that the views expressed in and the reasoning for these views would come from an athlete because any athlete will tell you, particularly in Division One, how many hours they spend, right? Yeah, absolutely. In, in, in the comparison to the employee status context of this letter that clearly the NCAA was just using as, as, uh, as you put it, the mouthpiece for them, it's the fear-mongering and control that the NCAA does to these athletes. And if you're, what you're saying is true, right? A lot of these athletes who, who join like the SAC committee have an interest in potentially going forward in, in employment in higher education and, and, and college athletics, then yeah, there is a fear that whatever you say is going to be scrutinized against you and you're not going to get that opportunity at whatever school or, or whatnot. So it's, it's actually the fact that they have that much control over them is to a degree that they are an employee because they have no say, they have no opinion, they can't express for the greater good of the rest of the quote unquote student athlete employees, because if you say anything bad against your employer, then you will be outcasted. Right. And then the ones who do disagree, want to be a little more radical, want to speak up, either get pushed out, get disillusioned right? Or they never join in the first place because the reputation of, again, this is like not these kids fault, right? Like SAC is set up as like a lame duck organization within the NCAA. Like the NCAA gave them more power in this constitution, but it's not even really more power, it's just more visibility. They have no control, none, none. So anyone who believes in more radical change is not even going to bother with them. Yeah. It's basically like student government. Yeah. <laughs> So that will take us to the end on the letter 
for now and we'll see what happens next. It's something that we're obviously going to continue to track and uh, appreciate all your reporting on this, Amanda. And again, for anybody that's listening to this, go and check out Amanda's article and, and, and boost that so that uh, people understand that it's not just a monolith of 190,000 student athletes that send it to your representative. So they're not hoodwinked. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hoodwinked. That's a great, that's a great, that's a great word. Look, as a journalist, nothing irritates me more than misattribution. Right. So when I saw this letter, I was like, there is no way, there's no way, there's no way that these are actually what the athletes think. Anyway, there certainly isn't. So we did get more news this past week, new guidance from the IRS, like we said, on collectives. A lot of collectives are set up as 501c3s. Mike, do you want to talk a little bit about what the IRS said? Yeah, I mean, speaking of misattributions here, we've got collectives being attacked by a memo that was released by the IRS chief counsel. So this is a memo. So this isn't precedent. This isn't law. This isn't really any sort of indication of what the IRS is going to do or not do, but it basically was a big law. I think this is just a very open warning to all NIL collectives that this memo basically said that donations that are specifically made to nonprofit NIL collectives are not tax exempt, but it's the caveat that it's specifically related to the benefits that are provided to college athletes. And the quote is that they're not incidentally both qualitative and quantitatively to further any exempt purpose. Now, the whole point of the the exempt status here is the reason that these collectives would be around is because they're furthering this exempt purpose, which in the eyes of the IRS would be something a little bit more charitable than a donation that's just handed to an athlete who can buy a nice expensive car and say, how great is this charity? So that the purpose of that is that they would be furthering something like education of athletes, uh, public health, something like that, right? That that's the, the goal of these tax exempt status here. But what's happening is the collectives are taking the donations, the gifts that are being made are tax write-offs, and these are going directly into the pockets of student-athletes, which we love. We love student-athletes getting money, but in the way that it's being skirted from the IRS, they're basically just saying that they're going to look under this, under a, a fine microscope here to make sure that they're they're not furthering any non-exempt, non-tax-exempt purpose here. So I'll open up to the floor here on what you think the IRS is really going to do moving forward. Is this just like a scare tactic? Are they actually going to move forward with with kind of keying in on some of these collectives? Again, I'll, I'll open to the floor. So that term 501c3, I think it gets tossed around a lot. I learned that the reason is because the section 501c3 dictates which areas are exempt. And so there's got to be like a, a public good. And that's why those uh, donations become exempt. So religious, educational, scientific, literary, public safety. And this one was interesting, fostering national or international amateur sports competition. And then finally, the prevention of cruelty uh, to animals or children. Amanda, I'll just ask you that second to last one, the fostering the national amateur sports competition. Don't these 501c3s, if they're giving the money to student athletes, doesn't that qualify under that one? Yeah, I mean, I think the IRS is saying like, maybe, maybe not, depending on, you know, like in some cases, yes, in some cases, no. I'm going to come out and say that I know even less about tax law than I, than I do about antitrust law. 
And but I will tell you that when this IRS memo, when when I was alerted to the news of this memo and uh, Sports Illustrated's article, I was with my best friend from college who is a tax attorney. So shout out to her. I was like, please help. You know, and the question I asked her, which Mike already addressed, was about the weight of this memo, which clearly is going to scare a lot of, you know, folks looking to create collectives in the future. Maybe they they just like won't even try the nonprofit, you know, like route or they will but they will hire many lawyers to do that I, I don't know but she was like look this is she said that that in order for this to be officially official there had to be some sort of litigation over it some sort of decision in tax court like that this memo is not like it has way in the sense that it's a good scare tactic but that's not the end of the story. I don't know if you would agree with that, but shout out to my college roommate, Grace, fabulous tax attorney. <laughs> yeah, uh, Amanda, I, I know that you're a journalist, not a lawyer, but it sounds like what you're saying is that it depends, which is the perfect law school answer. So, Yes, thank you very much. Yeah, well, I, I think that you're correct in, in that I've seen a lot of people kind of compare this to Jennifer Abruzzo, the NLRB GC, when she put out that memo that said that they don't view uh, student athletes to be, she doesn't even like that term, that they are employees. And and so I think that it's a little bit similar there too, because this is not binding. But Holly, uh, what this made me think of when I was reading this is something that we talked about with collectives being able to basically give out these points in exchange for donations. And so how do you think that those kind of things are linked, whether it's giving to an athletic department and you're getting better seats or or this, do you think that those are kind of similar things that they're trying to crack down on? I think that's a good question. I think that one of the most interesting parts of the guidance that the IRS submitted was basically saying that if you've already been granted this status, we're going to be like looking at you even harsher, like scrutinizing you even more now to make sure that you're in compliance. And the only real guidance that they specifically said was giving or providing direct benefit to student athletes, like paying student athletes specifically. That didn't say anything about giving points to donors or giving like exclusive signature opportunities or I don't know, giving meet and greets to donors to the collective. So I'm not exactly sure how it's going to affect them, but it kind of reminded me a little bit of like the first NCA NIL like handout of the punishment to the Cavender twins being like coming out of nowhere, um, not having a lot of guidance. It's like the IRS is going to be like, okay, you know what? We are now going to scrutinize you even harder. So what's that first like who's going to have the first slap on the wrist and what is it really going to be for? And right. is it going to be something that's not necessarily NIL at all, right? Yeah. And, yeah and exactly. if, I could, if I could interject even, because this is a question that I've been thinking about that I don't know the answer to, maybe, maybe you do. I don't understand from a tax law perspective the difference between an NIL collective as a nonprofit that is, you know, paying athletes to perform various services and is focused on a particular school from a foundation 
that is set up to help you know pay like athletic department officials salaries to play do you see what i'm saying like or even the athletic department itself like i'm just i'm struggling to see the difference there i think it's the the activity in question right so if the collective is solely functioning as like a marketplace to connect local businesses to the student athlete, I don't think that that's what the IRS would consider to be exempt under 501c3. But if they're getting them to do charity, say that they get them to go down to the Ronald McDonald house every week. And oh, by the way, like as one of the collective's student athletes who signed with us, you get to drive like this car. I think that that's probably a little bit more okay because that is more clearly under one of the exempt policies. But but that fourth one, I'm like still hung up on that because fostering national amateur sports competition, they're still amateurs. Even if they're making money from endorsements, they're still amateurs. Well, we have that circular definition of what is an amateur and it's those who aren't being paid. And then what is it, the definition of payment, a paid athlete and an athlete who's not paid as an amateur. We saw that circle that that gets stuck in the ninth circuit with the Austin case. When it was in the ninth circuit, there was the argument of what's an amateur. What does it mean if they're not paid? What if they are paid? So I, I don't know if that would count. It, and it's not necessarily the, the, the definition or the, the, the qualification there, Taryn, I think it's the purpose of direct benefits serving private interests. So that's that that's where you can't have a tax exemption when you are having benefits that are directly going towards private interests. And that's what this would be. It would be just because the athlete might be an amateur status wise, yes or no. The fact that they as an individual being a marketable individual getting money for their name, image, and likeness, that's their private interest. So they're getting direct benefits for their private interest. That removes the tax exemption. So Amanda, you said before that this, because this wasn't going to be, you know, like a binding law, there has to be some sort of litigation or something. There is precedent that would go towards this. And and specifically, there are two internal revenue rulings, 76-206 and 76-152, where they're both similar rulings where the IRS restricted or revoked tax-exempt status based upon direct benefits going towards private interests. And the first one was the classical music programs for a for-profit radio station where they were doing community donations and trying to qualify for tax exemption. But the organization's activity gave the radio station a platform to increase their total revenue, increasing their listening audience, and enhancing the value of the station overall. So that was the private interest of the station that all these benefits were directly going towards. So again, same thing. Direct benefits for the private interest. The radio station had had the private interest here to, to increase its revenue and its listening audience. The second one was a an art gala a community of modern arts where they were not qualifying for tax exempt status because they had art exhibits and they sold artwork of local artists. And those local artists received 90% of the sale proceeds. So those direct benefits of the 90% of the sales of the art was going towards the private interests of the local artists, which again, is not a bad thing, right? That's that's great, supporting local art, but it's not tax exempt because you have a direct benefit going towards a private interest. So that's the split off where yes, there might be an app, you might be furthering amateurism, but you're not, you're directly benefiting the private interest of that individual athlete who's getting the direct benefit from the donation, which was written off 
as a tax exempt donation, but going directly into the pocket of a student athlete for their name, image, and likeness and benefiting their private interests. So the benefits have to be generalized. They can't be localized. Correct. Correct. So, and, they, and they have to further that interest. So I don't know if that, right, it's not furthering amateurism by directly paying one athlete or multiple. That's okay. That makes sense. So that's like, it, it's three pieces then, which, right. uh, yeah. yeah. And, and shout out to David Bayard, who is a associate at Baker Donaldson for pulling those cases. He wrote a really good article about that. Sorry, you were saying, Amanda? No, I another question, like, but was the memo saying that for sure these donations are not tax exempt or only in certain cases, right? Because, because there's two things here, right? Like there is the, whether or not the money that the athletes receive is tax exempt, whether the organization is tax exempt. And then there's the question of whether or not the donors can write these off in their own taxes, right? And that's two separate, arguably three, Correct, because these because these collectives are encouraging the no donations to come in, right. and then basically saying to the person who's making the donation, "Hey, here's a tax write-off slip. You can write this off because we're a five hundred one c three, so you now uh -huh. get the benefit of tax exemption for your donation, and then we get the benefit of the of the the write-off for the donation itself, and because we're tax exempt." And then right. they directly give their, it's just funding the NIL projects that these collectives are having for these athletes. So all in all, again, the benefit goes to the athlete, which I'm not opposed to, but it's the, the additional benefit that these collectives are getting where they're having these getting tax exempt write-offs. That's, that's the issue. And, and the donations are, are also coming from boosters, right? So large boosters, it, it's not, again, I think the, the, overall picture of this isn't negative it's just the finite like benefits that are that are being additionally tacked on for these the tax exempt status that the irs is going to key in on especially for the ones who have been granted tax exempt status already to make make sure that they're not having the direct benefits to private interest when these nonprofits started uh, popping up the collectives i remember somebody saying probably on this show that it's very easy to get that 501c3 status and much more difficult to keep it. So that's something that we're definitely going to continue to track, uh, like all of these stories. And to finish up here tonight, I, I think we'll we'll have a little bit of fun on a, a story that has taken the internet by storm, but thankfully has not reached Amanda's ears. Uh, <laughs> the, the baby Gronk story. Holly, I think you've been following this. It was a big article in The Athletic. Can you tell us who is baby Gronk? Yeah, so his name is Madden San Miguel. He has more than 300,000 followers on social media right now, and he's only 10 years old from Dallas, Texas. He apparently wants to be a pro football player, um, but his dad, his dad knows how hard it is for kids to go pro. Um, so he has been driving his son all around the country from college town to college town for visits and to participate in these youth instructional like football camps, things like that. But his dad is also really pushing him into every sort of crevice the social media has now. So he is trying to put him on podcasts, trying to put him on talk shows, messaging every single influencer out there right now, trying to get them to collab with baby Gronk. So it's he's everywhere right now, or he's at least trying to be. Um, the most recent thing that happened today 
the news came out of, I guess, his dad basically feeding him lines for the Bring the Juice podcast. The hosts would ask Baby Gronk a question, Baby Gronk would answer, and his dad would then tell the podcast hosts, repeat the question, and then tell his son, now say this instead. So I think one of the things that was kind of the most jarring lines that was fed to Baby Gronk was the podcast host asked, okay, Baby Gronk, you're taking off middle school and high school from football. What are you going to do? And I think Baby Gronk said something like, relax, hang out, whatever. And his dad said, no, say that you're going to be getting massages, full body massages from baddies. So this 10-year-old had to say into the microphone, I'm going to be getting full body massages from baddies. Um, And I thought he looked very bored, maybe a little uncomfortable saying that. But hey, I, I don't know. I feel like he's just doing what his dad says. Definitely is doing what his dad says. It's a really uncomfortable watch, which, you know, I encourage people to, to see it just because it's pretty gross, but Dan Lust did ban baby Gronk's dad from conduct. <laughs> never be on well, this. Show. Yeah. That's what I was about to say is his dad's been called out recently. His dad's name is Jack San Miguel. So Jack's been called out recently, basically for continuously sliding into the influencer DMs. Basically, like I said, podcast hosts, influencer talk shows. So a couple uh, well-known athletes and like an ESPN broadcaster released the DMs that they had from baby Gronk's dad, basically saying like, hey, are you in Dallas? Hey, we're in your city. Can we come by? You want to collab? Have him on the show? Sending articles about baby Gronk to these influencers and being like, can you retweet this? Can you say, wow, this kid is going places or he's the best football, fourth grade football player out there, things like that. So I, I'm offended that we weren't asked for him to be on our show. Hey, but, Brad, I don't no. think he reached out to me, you know, I, maybe yeah. I my social guys, if front office sports was, uh, you know, was hit up by this guy, but I'm offended too, at this point, after hearing Linda, all this. Are they screening your DMs from baby girl? <laughs> I don't know. I, no, well, no, like, you know, like the front office where it's like main account, you know, like, I don't know. I got to ask the social guys. We'll see. A lot of people are comparing this to Todd Marinovich, who uh, was forced by his dad to try to become an NFL player. But his dad, you know, played at USC and so did like a bunch of his relatives. The, I saw somebody tweet out, uh, and I'm sorry, I'm forgetting who now, but was an NFL scout for many years and brought up this example of a guy at BYU who basically wasn't on the radar at all, but then played 10 games. And because he had the body for it, ended up a top five pick. And that's just kind of how the NFL is more than some of the other sports. It's not like a necessarily full skill thing where you can take a thousand jumpers a day and just become amazing at it. So first thing that I thought of when I saw this, it's a little bit less, it's, well, it's more concerning because of the father, like basically like pushing his son into doing this. And, and the, the thing that I, I recall from a couple of years ago was Bunchy Young, the, the young uh, football prodigy. I think he was nine or 10 at the time. He ended up being in the NFL commercial for the Super Bowl and then ran out onto the field. He was actually just in the movie uh, Home Team, the movie about Sean Payton's uh, suspension. That Kevin, oh, yeah. 
he was in that movie too. So uh, it kind of reminded me of that, of Bunch of Youngs. Like he was like very famous on, you know, on Instagram and TikTok and kind of rose through like social media as a young football player who wants to play pro, something like that. This was just more concerning where it's like the father, like basically like putting his son out there to earn. I don't even know. I, I don't even know what, if he's getting name, image, and likeness deals or trying to, that that's where he's trying to go as a middle schooler. <laughs> yeah. Baby for fourth sure, grade, he's fourth grader, fifth grader. Fourth grade. He's fourth grade. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so he's making about a hundred k right now per year. That's what his dad reported last. Is that doing all this digital marketing that he has for his son, the different promotionals, and then being on these talk shows, I guess, has gotten him some sort of flat where he can make a hundred k per year. But Mike, you said something interesting about like him wanting to play football and this being different than Bunchy Young because. Bunch of young, like wanted to play football, and it wasn't like his dad maybe necessarily pushing him as hard as baby Gronk's dad was. One of the things that at least well, we didn't yeah, see it yeah, at least we, <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. One of the things that Jack San Miguel said was that baby Gronk is not a normal kid, is what he said. He said normal kids are emotional. Baby Gronk has been trained and programmed since he was six years old to be an NFL football player and to only care about football. And I think they train five, six, seven days a week. He only eats like an NFL diet. He follows their training regimes. Like he is a very intense kid and he doesn't really have time to be a kid. And I know another thing that his dad said was like, I just want my son to be like set up for life just in case he doesn't go pro because it's really hard. So he's making this money. He's going into a savings account. I want him to be well taken care of so he never has to worry. Um, but he also said that this was his plan for his son even before he was born. So my like my first thought is like baby Gronk can't be a kid. He can't be emotional. He's programmed and he doesn't get to have any agency because this plan was made for him even before he was born. I mean, this is the rise. I mean, we saw this with the Ball brothers, LeVar Ball, with his with his sons. I mean, they were regimented to become NBA superstars. Two of the three made it to the NBA. One because of some stupid things that uh, Langelo did. Summer league, right? So yeah, L- Langelo's good. He just had some bad off court things with the with like robbing the the gas station in China. But you know, it's the same thing. We saw Lavar get a platform, and then they had their own TV show, and he was like, "This is what I make my boys do. They're prime. They're going to be NBA superstars, greatest of all time." Blah blah blah. blah. And, and then like now. At that moment, right, there were issues then of them earning compensation because they had the the shoe brand, right? So there was the issues with LaMelo Ball earning any sort of potential revenue and losing his amateur status back before NIL and all that stuff. So, you know, we're seeing everything kind of culminate now where there's the dads or parents knowing that they can groom their children to earn money now and they're not losing that ability to play in high school or college athletics so i think we'll put a pin in it there thanks again everyone for listening as always you can find us on social media at con detrimental for me at tk sharma law at mike underscore son of underscore law and holly summers has a new twitter at slam dunk summers and as always, Amanda Kristovich at A Kristovich, two H's, no underscore at the end, right? Just two H's.
Just two H's. A. Kristovich. I don't know who they are, but they're out there. So Yeah, they're squatting on it. That's what you need to get the social guys on. Get you your one H. Thanks again for joining us, Amanda. We'll definitely have you back on next time a big sport, college sports law story breaks. Thanks, Amanda, for joining us. We'll definitely have you back on. Yeah, thank you for having me. That'll do it for us on another episode of Conduct Detrimental.